The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. I'm Maura Aarons-Mealy, host of The Anxious Achiever, and this is my bi-weekly LinkedIn Live, where I continue the conversation around mental health and work with some of the best business leaders out there. Because we always want to expand the conversation around mental health and work, we're going to be expanding the content we drop in the feed. So this week, we're experimenting, and I'd love to know what you think. This conversation with executive coach Nihar Chaya, one of my favorite thinkers, fellow anxious achievers, and an expert on helping leaders manage through big transitions, is a little bit more conversational. We answer listener questions, and we really get in to both how we manage our own mental health through transitions and how leaders more broadly can learn to sort of tune in to what anxiety might be telling them as they grow in their careers. Every other week on LinkedIn, I host live conversations, and I really want to broaden the reach and impact and breadth of what we talk about. So do let us know what you think. Hello, Nihar. Hi, Maura. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm so excited for the chance just to talk to you. And, you know, it's funny. We're like, LinkedIn friends and interview friends. Um, (laughs) But I wanted to talk to you um, because you are an executive coach. You are someone who's been in and out of tons of organizations, I would imagine. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You manage your own mental health. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's something that I know is very present for you. And, you know, as I follow your posts, I see that you write a lot about change and sort of those transformation, those transformational moments in a career mm-hmm. that can be really exciting and like exactly what we've worked for, but also really scary and anxiety provoking. Definitely. <laughs> um, so I, I'm wondering, just, I thought a good question to get framed up and you can tell us a little bit about yourself and all that good stuff is, you know, you've been an entrepreneur for how many years now? Uh, almost nine. Nine years. Mm-hmm. Okay. What has being an entrepreneur taught you about how your your mental health shows up at work? Oh, man. Um, it certainly, uh, it elevated it a little bit, but in a different way. So I think I've always had a little bit of an anxiety streak in work in general, just like to your title, anxious achiever, you know, I kind of have a ambition and high achievement has always been a part of what I want to do, but entrepreneurial, it's, it's a little bit of a um, double-edged sword on one hand. I love the fact that I'm doing it myself because I, I was a big value of mine is autonomy. And then at the same time, you kind of feel like you're on that limb all by yourself and have those moments where like, wow, I'm all by myself out on this limb. And that's where the anxiety can show up as well. So one of the things that I think comes up a lot for me is a constant back and forth between, um, you know, am I doing enough? 
and should I be, you know, working harder or working differently? And that's what causes more anxiety. Whereas when you're in a nine to five job or at least in a company, you kind of, it's, it's kind of the rules are written for you a little bit mm -hmm. um, and you kind of know what's expected of you. I love that you said that one of your values is autonomy. I think you and I have talked about this. I mean, my number one workplace value to myself is independence, mm -hmm. is autonomy and independence. And I've learned, I've been an entrepreneur for a long time. I've learned that I will sacrifice almost anything to be able to keep my autonomy, mm -hmm. even though it makes me anxious. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. Because like, I'll tell you something, you know, a lot of times people ask me, well, you know, what are you going to do if things don't work out and this and that? But the one thing I know for sure is that I don't want to go back to yeah. work for somebody else. I mean, granted, we, I have clients, they're my bosses, but I don't want to go back into that kind of traditional work setting. Um, and that keeps me somewhat um, secure in a weird way because I, I know myself so well. And, and I think the other thing I was going to say was, you know, I'm 49 years old and I've been in the, I've had 25 years of work experience. You know, it's not just an entrepreneur. In fact, I'm more of a junior entrepreneur than anything else. And so having gone through that enough, mm -hmm. I'm never going to be all of a sudden surprised that like, wow, maybe I didn't really experience what I really need to experience in the office. You know, I'm not going to ever do that. And I know I'm not going to be surprised by that. So that gives me a sense of like, if I was a 25 year old entrepreneur, I think I might have a little bit of like, wow, what, do I really know what I'm doing yet? But I have a lot of, uh, uh, I guess, I don't want to say wisdom, but it's like, you know, scars, I suppose, <laughs> from the process yeah. <laughs> that I know it's rarely going to change so much that I would want to go back. Absolutely. Is, is finding, I mean, understanding your values, both your sort of meta values, like what you want to stand for in the world, what you want to impart to your children is really important for managing your mental health. And I think understanding your workplace values mm -hmm. is also important. Is that something that you do with your clients? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, and it's funny because a lot of the tools that we use like Hogan and other personality leadership assessment tools, they'll talk about things like, do you value recognition or power or autonomy or um, financial uh, well-being? But rarely do we talk about, do you like to work alone? Do you like to work in a team? How, how much tolerance do you have for meetings? And this is a little bit of the challenge, I think, that people are uh, recognizing that, you know, for years you weren't allowed to really talk about that. Um, now with the work from home and everything kind of changed, you are starting to have more of a discussion of like, maybe it's, I'm not weird that I don't like to actually be stuck in a conference room all day with, you know, with meetings and stuff. Um, I remember for myself, like there was a running joke that at some of the companies I worked with, um, when I would get promoted, I would get an office, but I was never there. Like, cause I, I just preferred to be alone. I, I didn't want people coming to visit me and like, you know, all of a sudden having to be stuck in one place. Cause that created the anxiety for me. So, so it was like, the joke was that, oh, you're still a consultant. You're still kind of running around <laughs> being like, I'll visit you so I can leave instead of having to be stuck <laughs> in my office. So you never saw pictures of my family. You never saw like this kind of beautiful office that other people had. And I think part of that was a value system in mind, which was this workplace is not going to identify me. You know, I just need to be able to be an autonomous person and somebody who's going to be uh, like a free agent in some respects. And that was just always a part of who I was. That's so interesting. And for me, actually, my last corporate job, um, 
I, I got offered a really beautiful office and um, they rebuilt the office and, and it was right next to the managing director, the GM. Wow. And he, he had brought me on, he mentored me. He was amazing to me, but the pressure of being next to him Mm-hmm. felt so great. I mean, most people I think would have been like, this is amazing. Like ultimate. Yes. Right next door to the boss. Like, yes, mm-hmm. I couldn't do it. I actually said no, which mm-hmm. in retrospect, I wouldn't have done, but I just, the pressure of being in a glass box next to him mm-hmm. f- spiked my anxiety so much. Um, and, th- and that was a signal to me that I wasn't in a, an environment that was right for me and my temperament. Yeah. Well, good for you for having the courage to say no to it, to say yes to what was important to you. You know, like I, um, I, I grew up with a mom who, who worked, uh, she was a immigrant, you know, she, she used to always joke. She was like before F she was a female, she was a foreigner, she was five feet zero and she was 40 plus. And she worked in a aerospace and defense consulting company with Lockheed and these other companies. And it was a constant having to kind of keep up with the, the, the masculine figures there and, and this and that. And I remember just, you know, having on one hand so much admiration for her. On the other hand, just feeling like I would never want to be so nervous and stressed out, you know, at work. But I did, you know, somehow we kind of subconsciously also follow those those paths because that's all we know. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, it, and what your story reminds me of is like, I think in Japan, for instance, like the culture is you can't leave until you're after your boss leaves. The office, yeah, you know, and I, I get that there's cultural differences and there's maybe pros and cons to that. But man, you know, just if you're spending your whole half of your life in the office and you have to be nervous because you're next to your managing director, I mean, I just don't know that that's uh, a way to live. It's funny. I interviewed um, Jimmy Horowitz on my podcast, who's um, vice chairman at NBC Universal, and he was remarking that. In the entertainment industry, and I remember this when I, you never left before your boss. Mm. And that the pandemic just changed all of that. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. A, they all went remote. And then it was like, who knows where my boss even is? Like the sort of space and time continuum changed. Totally. Now, I will say that the, the scary part about it is people are still finding a way to track each other, <laughs> you know, and it's like texts over the weekend and email. I'm, you know, a lot of my clients are dealing with that. Really? Some of them are the ones that are doing it too. And it's not necessarily coming from a bad place, but it really is just a, a different level of anxiety for them, which is, I don't know if anybody is really around when I need them. And what happens if something really comes down the pike that I can't control um, and I think a lot of this stuff that you and I talk about, it really comes down to like this feeling of I'm not in control, you know, and then it goes back to feelings of FOMO and envy and all those things that we, that we talk about, you know, I know. What do you tell your, how do you help your clients get in touch with the, the things they are most scared of not controlling? Cause it's different for, like we just said, like some people would be terrified not to have a steady paycheck, right? Mm-hmm. Because that taps into their fears. For for me, it's like, if I don't have accountability for my time, if I can't control my time, I get very anxious. Like, mm-hmm. what's, do you, how do you help clients like start to unfold their particular sort of control needs? Yeah. A lot of it is really just doing some self-examination of the triggers. Um, and when is it that they notice a shift in their, um, their kind of, um, you know, their happiness, or their fulfillment, or their, they become more tense. 
I was just in a co- coaching conversation this morning, working with a guy who is trying to build up the next level of talent underneath him. And he really is someone who the company loves. And it's, it's almost like even when he wants to pull back and delegate more, um, everybody else doesn't, they're not ready for that. They want him to be involved in everything. And, uh, you know, and I can tell like he has a lot of tension around the fact that he can't control whether the people he delegates to will be able to do it in the same vein as him. Mm. And he also can't control his own um, desire to get involved because he likes the work. You know, it's just so much of the coaching that I do is really around transitions. So how do you kind of, you get promoted to become a VP or a, or a CEO and like all of a sudden your identity has shifted completely to the point where you're not supposed to get in there and do the work you're really good at. You all of a sudden have to transition into, into being more of a coach and, and a, strate- a strategic leader. But that stuff is very nebulous compared to the actual nuts and bolts of what you did before. And so it does cause these kinds of shifts in behavior and, and, um, and, you know, kind of it's insecurity and fear. It, it, it manifests in different ways. So a lot of people who might feel, um, in fact, I'm doing a, a, a presentation on this coming up, which is sometimes people will have hubris. Well, they're, they're very overconfident. Um, it's their way of kind of coping with the fear mm-hmm. of the unknown. And then there's the self doubt, which is that, you know, sometimes they are actually quite outward with that. That like, wow, I'm nervous, I'm fearful. And that can also send a, send a little bit of the wrong message when you're in the leadership role. How do you navigate between the two? But I think to your question, the first step is to really be, um, do some self-monitoring and maybe ask some trusted people around you to, to, to tell you when they notice that something's happening. And then I think really is just taking those small steps to really just, you know, one question I always ask my clients is, what is the simplest thing we could do differently to get you in that direction that you want to go? You know, and it really has to come down to making this really simple and really, you know, um, experimental. Like, let's just experiment with it instead of making this, putting this pressure that we have to all of a sudden become this different person automatically. I love that experiment, learning mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny. I, I also love to think about sort of tuning in and paying attention. I, I call these my anxiety tells. Yeah. And um, a lot of the guests I interviewed have really varying tells for when their mental health is like, beep, beep, you know, so maybe it's not sleeping, appetite changes are a big one. For me, it's when my my jaw tightens up. I'm like, and I lose my appetite. I'm like, this something's wrong here. Something's off. You need to listen. What are what are your tells? Oh man. So I, um, mine's very visceral. Like mm-hmm. I start getting lightheaded a little bit. Um, I start getting really like, um, what's the word? Not neurotic. It's the, it's kind of like very focused, um, oh, hypervigilant. So, so I become, I become much more aware of things that I never would have been aware of. Uh, I was talking to my wife about this. Like sometimes I feel as if, uh, I overthink everything to the point that I'm even, it's almost an extension, existential level of overthinking. <laughs> like, what am I really here for? You know, those kinds of things. And so those tells are like, I'm so used to them now that it's like, okay, you're going down a really different rabbit hole now. Um, and then of course, I think the basic ones, which is like avoidance. Like I, mm-hmm. I'm one of those people who um, like in the Hogan, for instance, the assessment tool, they'll talk about how during the dark side of your personality, um, there are some people that will kind of become more withdrawn, which is, I guess, the flight part of fight and flight. Some people will actually become more bold and like more fighting. Mm-hmm. I'm much more the withdrawing type. So when I'm feeling anxiety, uh, I become much more 
um, you know, withdrawn and quiet and, and I become a little bit more like, uh, just don't want to deal with anybody, anybody or anything. Um, whereas like, you know, I know a lot of people who they cope with it by getting in there and like becoming a little bit more, uh, emboldened. So it's a different type of tell. That's really fascinating. The hypervigilance is really key. I mean, hypervigil an, an audience, I would love to hear your tells. And yeah. if you have, if you have questions for me and Nihar, like, throw them in. We, we actually can't see you. So, but please, um, I think that what's really interesting is the concept between sort of avoiding and going for it. And I think we see, we see this in our, in leaders all the time. I mean, my husband calls me a bomb thrower. When, when I get anxious, I throw verbal bombs. Like I'm provocative. I am like in your face, hyper present. Mm -hmm. And I think that I see that in a lot of anxious leaders, you know, it's like their anxiety manifests as like, you're always in my inbox. Why are you always checking up on me? Yes. You're taking up too much space in meetings, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, it's, it's fascinating to me how people cope with these things, you know? And even the fact that many of us theoretically know what's going on, you know, we know we, I mean, obviously there's some people that maybe aren't mature or evolved enough in their thinking to know that that's happening. But even though we know that it's a fight or flight that's happening just on a, on a very kind of, um, you know, a, a primitive level, uh, the way we tend to cope with it is really interesting because we, I, I oftentimes think about like childhood. I think about like, how did this all start? You know, like I have a sister who is, we're both very opposite. She's much more extroverted. She's much more talkative. Um, I always believe that, um, when you're living in like siblings environment, sometimes you have to find your own room. There's no, not enough room for like two similar people. So because she was much more, uh, effusive, I became much more quiet. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, like the way I deal with anxiety ever since I was young was really going inward. Um, whereas like I see other people like my sister, for instance, or other people that I know who are a little bit more extroverted, they tend to go outward with their, and that can come up in perfectionism or come up in trying to control outcomes. Um, a lot of my, uh, challenges are always like, it's my fault. You know, like I am dealing with this. I, I what's wrong with me kind of thing, mm -hmm. you know, as opposed to what's wrong with them. Now, it's not that I don't have those moments where like, what's wrong with this person, but usually I'm, I'm my first go-to is like, Oh, I wish I didn't, I wish I wasn't the one that was inadequate here. <sighs> this is weird. It's low self-esteem. <laughs> I don't even, I think it's way more complicated than that. You know, yeah. it's, um, it, and again, it does, some of it starts in childhood. That's why I'm, I love looking at family systems theory and, and, mm -hmm. and Bowen systems theory, because it's like the role that we play is often the role that we emulate as leaders, you know, yeah, that's true. Um, I'm so curious. What, what do we get wrong about anxiety and leadership well i think first that that it's something to be ashamed of or it's something that only weak people feel or people who were you know pathologically affected or you know that they that they were um you know just as if it's abnormal and i think and in fact i'll even say this sometimes i feel like people think of anxiety in a very monolithic way too like, oh, you know, yeah, I get, I get nervous in the mornings, you know, or I get nervous before I go on a stage and I'm like, that's, that's really normal. 
Like, you know what I mean? And, but there's another layer to that, which is anxiety shows up in, I think, how you um, make sense of the world around you, you know, like how do you gauge threats? And those threats can come from anywhere. Like I think a lot about um, David Rock has this uh, neuroscience model where he talks about the SCARF um, acronym, where so the, the brain, you know, the lizard brain basically is always processing threats. And, you know, we know that from, you know, evolution and stuff. But in these modern days, SCARF are those five things that typically create a sense of threat, which is status, S, C is, um, oh, I'm going to forget this, Stat oh, uh, status, I know A is uh, autonomy, R is relatedness, F is fairness, and C, I forget it, maybe competition, I can't remember. But essentially, the idea here is that, you know, these are the things that create a sense of threat for us. So if, if, if I feel like my status is being threatened, you know, at work, I'm going to lash out in some kind of way, whether it's inward or outward, you know, if my autonomy that we talked about is being threatened or my relatedness, like if I'm feeling very lonely and I'm not, or, or I need to be around more people and I don't have that opportunity, I'm going to show up in a certain way. And fairness is a big one for me, which is, you know, I always laugh about this, like my first job out of grad school, I was so excited. I never even knew about how to negotiate salaries. I never knew that you had to, you could ask for more. I just was so excited to get what I got in Manhattan when I was there in the nineties. And I literally found out um, a couple months later that my peer, literally two of us were reporting the same boss was getting paid twice as much as me. Twice as much. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. And I just was like, what? Like I wasn't even supposed to know that, but the fairness component has always been a big thing for me, where some people might've said, well, you know, maybe they have a different situation and they're growing into it. I mean, they're more advanced and this and that. So, you know, though, when I know that those threats are happening, it's going to affect me a little bit differently and it might affect other people differently depending on what what's their trigger. I love that, the SCARF model. That's that's great. Um, Dalji, I see your question, how to deal with a tough situation at work or people have rigid approach. Maybe you could just send a comment with a little more clarity because I'm not sure... I understand your question, but would love to get to it. Um, yeah, see, fairness doesn't bother me. I sort of have this, I'm a little bit of a nihilist and I just am like, life isn't fair, you know? And so that wouldn't bother me. I would be, I would be pissed about it, but I wouldn't, it wouldn't let raise to the level of sort of threat or anxiety. Um, this, this stuff is so personal, isn't mm -hmm, it? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, and, and like you said, you know, one of the things that I like what you just said about fairness if you can create some of these heuristics or I guess these kinds of like agreements with yourself that feel right to say, it doesn't bother me, mm -hmm. that's a great way of acceptance. Because like, for instance, however you got there is going to help you move on from this threat. Um, and, you know, I think for many of us, like if I have, why didn't, why didn't that fairness in that issue make me want to leave the company? Mm. Actually, because I was so happy to have gotten a job, right? So I think it's all relative. It all depends on the context of the situation. Or for instance, status. Status might be important to me in, in one moment. But if I am able to think of it like status doesn't bother me as long as I have autonomy, you know, think of it like this. So many of my clients are C-level executives, you know, on paper, they're amazing people, right? They have amazing titles, the 1% kind of thing. Um, the reason why it doesn't bother me in terms of status that I'm like, uh, and not the same status is because one, I found my role in that world 
that is much more aligned to what I love to do and my strengths, which is not being that CEO, but being the coach of the CEO. And the second thing is because I have my autonomy, which is that because that's a value of mine and I love being able to do what I want to do. So then it never bothers me the status part as much as the autonomy is, is there. I feel the same way as a, as a consultant. I often, especially now being, you know, I, I had a company, I sold it, I'm on my own now. Mm-hmm. And when I do consulting projects, sometimes I take on tasks that are sort of like beneath my experience level. You know, I'm working on stuff that like I could have done 15, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. But again, I'm like, it doesn't bother me. I'm happy to take it on because I am here by choice. I like this client. And it allows me to keep my autonomy in the framework. And so what a powerful question, everyone. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of what bothers me at a deep, visceral level? Mm-hmm. And what just doesn't really bother me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, okay, so Dalja's question is, and forgive me if I'm pronouncing your name wrong. One of the team members acts difficult to change. How to deal with a situation when a team member is difficult to change and clearly it's making um, the team upset. Um, Any questions about how to get someone on your team to change when they may not know they need to change? Well, one thing I'm taking away from her comment is that um, it's, I believe it's a team thing, right? So, So workable for other team members. I think that's a really important point, which is if you can make it that you're affecting the team at large, and our effectiveness, that can be a lot more effective, I think, in delivering the feedback. So it's not as personal. Um, it's not about whether I agree with you or, you know, because I think what happens a lot of times is going back to values, like people are doing a job. It doesn't always mean that the job aligns with who they are as people. And I think a lot of times CEOs and executives will and will say things like, we want us to be a family and we're a family and we should all be working together and we should all love work. But I mean, let's be real. Like, we didn't really choose our family, right? You know, and we're we're not. And certainly, if you're going to be firing like your staff tomorrow, then you clearly didn't look at them as family, right? So, but they expect you to do that when you're there. And I think when you say things like, "Hey, I need you to change for this reason because you know I don't agree with it," that's going to go down a little bit harsher than saying, "Hey, while you're here, if you don't change this, it's affecting all of us." as a team in terms of what we're doing. It doesn't matter whether we agree with you or not, or you don't agree with us, but we're, we are have to, we do have to operate as a team while we're at work. Exactly. That's what I was about to say. I, I think so. I mean, I deal with this a lot when I'm working with people who are a little bit perfectionistic, right? And so, you know, when you're a perfectionist, that really can affect your team because you're holding really high standards for yourself and you might be making yourself super anxious, but you may be holding your team to unfair standards. You might be micromanaging or controlling your team because you're so anxious something's not going to be perfect. And it can be really powerful for a team to say, you know, like this, this stuff is contagious and, 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 and it's, it's making us feel like we have to work around your anxiety, these milestones that you've set, which we're not sure are even accurate. Um, but this this pegs into Vanessa's question. As a fellow anxious achiever slash perfectionist, I'm wondering how to frame conversations around anxiety in the workplace. Namely, how do we normalize boundaries and expectations without creating more anxiety? That is an excellent question. Hmm. Oh, so one thing I'll say is 
be comfortable or be willing to, I think, broaden the definition of what anxiety is. Um, it's kind of reminds me of like just diversity, inclusion, belonging. Like, I think sometimes for, for better, or for worse, these words have on one hand, we've destigmatized a lot of it, which is great. But on the other hand, people, I think all of us have brains where we're looking for shortcuts, you know, like, let me define that really quickly. Okay. That's what that means. And I think for a lot of people, anxiety still is in whatever definition they've created, they've believed, they believe it in the, in the way they see anxiety. And I think when we think about normalizing something, think about how it shows up in different ways for different people. So anxiety could be procrastination. Anxiety could be missed deadlines. Anxiety could be um, failed agreements and promises that you made to your team members. Anxiety could be the fact that like, you know, hey, don't talk to me in such a, don't raise your voice when you talk to me, you know, and just general decency and things like that. So I think all those things are related to, to our own human condition of dealing with anxiety, but a better way to get people to talk about it would be to, to really label the behavior that they're seeing as an offshoot of that. Yeah. And then think about how is that helping or hindering the, the general result we want as a company and as an organization. Yeah. And I think one of the questions, Vanessa, you're asking is really interesting because it's around how do we normalize boundaries and expectations without making people anxious about those? And mm -hmm. I, I think that's what you're asking too. And I think that's really interesting because, you know, boundaries can make people very anxious because people like you and me, Nihar, we hear someone setting a boundary with us and we might think, they don't like us. Yes. <laughs> they think we're bad. They think we're going to get this wrong. They think we're annoying. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. so that person is merely trying to, you know, even today, like I read, you know, I read, thank you for this. I reach out to people and I'm like, can we do this together? And they're like, no, I'm too busy, which is absolutely a valid boundary. And I hear you're not worth my time. Right. Right. Yeah. So, Oh, I think that's a spot on point, you know, especially as entrepreneurs, okay. right? We're, we're constantly having to, to, I hate the, I hate this phrase, but I'm just going to say it. People say hunt what we kill. I mean, a kill, yeah, hunt what, you know, eat what we kill, whatever. I mean, but the idea here is that like, even if we have a bad day at a nine to five job, you're still going to get paid. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, but the bad days and really what comes down to, I think for us in our people helping professions is a bad day could be somebody just not even wanting to take your call that day, you know, or just not really showing up in a coaching conversation. You're thinking like, oh, was it something that I said? Or, you know, did we not connect today? What's going to happen? Right. And that creates that other chain of anxiety. So yeah, I, yeah. I'm with the other boundaries part. I mean, I think one thing, Vanessa, this is like very tactical is I don't set boundaries over email or in text because, you know, expect and expectations as well we are human and there's so much baggage in these conversations, again, based on what we come to work with, based on the stories that we tell, based on systemic and social biases and the effects of who we are at work. And so I think that sometimes when people use email to be like, here's what I expect, don't call me here. I, I, I my, my producer and I laugh. I, I pitched a very famous author. I really wanted her on my podcast. It was such a great fit. And I got her autoresponder and it said, here's how to contact me. Here's my agent. I don't do podcasts. So don't basically don't bother asking me to do your podcast. I don't do podcasts. Mm -hmm. And, um, my producer was like, she was so angry. She was like, <laughs> and I was, I just was like, 
oh my God, like my medium is not worth it to this famous author. I just took it on myself. And, you know, if she, if we had been joking and she had been like, you know, like I really prioritize my time and I don't do podcasts because they don't work for me. I would have been like, totally great. But like getting this autoresponder that was like, I don't do podcasts yeah. and don't ask me. Was You're so right. <laughs> email, email has no tone. You know what I mean? Like it's just, you don't get that whole human element. But at the same time, it's a great point you make, which is, boundaries uh for them they probably are doing that because they probably gotten inundated with these requests and stuff and they're thinking i gotta put a boundary you know and it's like but can you put that boundary in a much more gentle human way uh yeah email is not the great greatest medium for that well and actually the very definition of a boundary right is actually um often not how we use it a boundary when it's crossed, right, is something that makes me uncomfortable, something that touches on my own personal sort of antennae. Yeah. And then I need to understand that and set limits around it. But the thing is, is that achieving is tied to worthiness. Okay, hold on. I'm going to, I'm going to get you in a sec, Vanessa. Is that, is that, you know, what, what upsets me may not upset you. So for me, clients can email me all day long. They can call me. I don't care. Like that doesn't personally upset me. And so I don't set limits around that, but I, my, one of my closest colleagues who I worked with for years, that really upset her encroaching Mm -hmm. on her family time was a boundary crosser for her. And so she Mm -hmm. had to set limits and I would violate those limits often. (laughs) Yeah. Cause I was like, I'm in a zone. It's Saturday morning. And I would forget. Right. (laughs) So, Again, boundaries are super personal and taking the time to understand yours and how they affect your team and vice versa is mm-hmm. important. Yeah. And even explaining them to your people, the people that you that are going to get affected by it, right? And I guess that you're right. That was Vanessa's question. Like, how do you do that without creating anxiety on their part? Uh, yeah. Um, okay, Vanessa, we're going to go. We're going to go for your next question. Through my own research for my book, I've learned achieving is tied very much to worthiness. How do we unlearn that? Oof, I think you're asking the two right people. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah, self worth, right? It's uh, that's the thing, and I think you know it, it's. I used to think that if I was really in touch with my values, and uh, you know, hey, I I I like this, and so if as long as it's being met, I'm going to be fine. I think here's the challenge for people like people like you, and me, maybe a lot of people on the phone on the video today is a big value of mine is learning. And so I'm not happy if I'm not continually learning something new. And so the problem is I'm in a little bit of a paradox because I'm always feeling behind, but at the same, because I didn't really get, you know, exactly what I, my mind can think about, you know, materializing more of. And at the same time, I don't want to ever stop doing that because I would be miserable if I was working in a job where it was just like, this is what you're going to make. And this is what you're going to do every day until you're 60 years old. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so, so my self-worth in many ways is tied up in all the things that I'm doing. And yet, it, so it's never really enough. And yet I'm kind of happy that it's never enough because that's also something that keeps me moving and excited. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense to you. Totally. I mean, I think that's, that's a big piece of what I try to do with the anxious achiever is like, I think you said this in the HBR article, like you have to sort of learn to love your neurotic self. And, and, yeah. it, and if that's a value and you sort of love that you're sort of driven to hustle and always be seeking and learning more and taking on more and trying to earn more and do new things like cool, yeah. as long as it's serving you. I mean, I think that's the litmus test. I mean, for me, Vanessa, I'm, I'm constantly trying to unlearn 
everything that I learned for the first <laughs> 20 some odd years of my life. I, I just had my 25th college reunion last this weekend. And I was like, how many things have I actively been trying to unlearn since I graduated from college? That was what I was really thinking about is I didn't like that person, that person, but she, she learned so many bad things. Mm. And so I think that like, that's just, that's just what we adults who are seekers, like that's yeah. who we are. And when we know that we we have patterns and habits and, and anxieties that don't serve us, like we have to be on the journey of unlearning and also knowing that we get tripped up a lot. Like we get tripped up. Mm. Um, I don't know. I, I don't have a good answer. I think it's just. One thing that I've been thinking a lot about is, so do you watch Succession? obsessed yeah and the finale was incredible oh my god and you know just talking just thinking a lot about how you know these are characters that you could you honestly could tell that in different moments of the show they didn't really want to take over the thing but they kind of wanted to because they didn't want to not win you know and i think of that a lot when it relates to like anxiety and, and achievement and things like that like we are inundated with uh, messages of I should want that I probably should be fighting for that even though I don't really want it um, or the problem I think as seekers is the message I'll go in my head which is I don't think I want to do that but what if I might want to do that later should I be should I be working towards that right because I don't even trust myself now because I think that my future self will want to be much more expansive that all creates a lot of noise you know and one thing that I'm starting to recognize now is shifting from this consumer mindset to a producer mindset. Mm. And I, I, I get to give you a lot of props because you're a great content creator. Um, but this idea that like, are you consuming all these inputs about uh, what you should be doing, what success looks like, as opposed to really sitting down and just building something and putting your thoughts out there. And I know for myself, I'm sure for a lot of people, it's so much easier to scroll and look at things and make and feel worse about what you're really doing, putting out into the world and wondering also, man, why didn't I do that? Why didn't I do that? You know? So a lot of it is, is for myself is habit building now to say, and I think as an entrepreneur, that's another thing that I've really learned and maybe create a lot of anxiety is like when you're in a, in a company working a job, there are boundaries to what you can even do outside of the job. They don't want you building websites and side hustles and stuff like that. You know, now the world is your oyster. You can do whatever you want. And you're thinking, man, I'm so tired. Like I'm really tired delivering my existing job. And I still have to go out there and build more relationships, you know, and content and stuff. And so that kind of thing, I think at some point building that, that being at peace with the fact that it's all moving, but also shift for a little bit from taking it all in to building something out there might, might be helpful. I love that. I love that. Creation is actually one of the best ways to me to sort of externalize and unload your anxiety and, yeah. and, and give it and give it a job. Like anxiety needs a job. Um, David says, I don't believe you should all caps or need all caps unlearn to, to learn. I don't think you should or need to unlearn anything. It's a part of your amazing tapestry that makes up you looking back equals depression, looking forward equals anxiety, question mark, just be, just be. Mm. I wish I could, David. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's the lifelong uh, burden that we have. Just be, 
I love that whole saying that uh, John Kabat-Zinn, right? Wherever you go, there you are. You know, it's like, yeah, theoretically, I know that's true. And I think a lot of, I, I wonder, do you think about this um, more as well, that like anxiety is a function of having a really wild imagination? Do you ever get that? Because for me, I know that that's true. Like I'm, I'm one of those guys. I mean, when I was a kid, I just would look out the school bus window, daydream. That was all I did, you know? And I, to this day, I'm still someone who just continually, continuously is in my head mm-hmm. and just imagining and everything. And it's like, on one hand, that is a, a huge motivator, but it's also a constant benchmark that I'm unable to live up to, you know, <laughs> and it just rises up all the time. Oh man. Okay. Well, listen, next episode, we're not going to get to it today because we're like even way over time now. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to talk about FOMO and envy and anxiety because yeah. I want to talk to you about that. So I'm going to put a pin on that, but yes, I, and and I think again, though, like I, <laughs> I have made peace with the just like I just I mean David you're saying it's the monkey brain it's just a conversation in your monkey brain I um I sort of accept and I and I love my brain I really do it is so challenging I'm also you know I have bipolar too so for me I spend a lot of my time sort of like hypomanic which is extremely um as stressful and anxiety provoking, but also like extremely generative and creative. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and I, you know, I, like I always say, like I've tried 25 different medications. I've been in a billion different kinds of therapies. It's been decades at this point. Um, and, you know, I'm not a doctor, but my personal belief is that like there are, we all have our baselines sometimes. And that's, we have to learn to work with what we've got at some level while also managing the dark side and the hard parts, you know? Absolutely. It takes so much uh, courage. It does, but it's a privilege too. Mm. I'm going to wrap this. Okay. We could go on forever, but I, but I hope you'll come back and do this with me. Absolutely. I love it. It's so great. And thank you for your wisdom. And I've taken notes here, actually. And, you know, people out there, like, please leave us comments, you know, engage in the the conversation. And we will see you next time. Thanks a lot, Moira. Good seeing you. Bye. That's it for today. To hear more LinkedIn Lives, head over to my profile on LinkedIn, where they're all indexed you can subscribe to my newsletter too. And be sure to subscribe or follow the Anxious Achiever feed for more of these conversations, as well as my regular podcast episodes.